0: This Institute of Ideas podcast is called Are Political Parties Over? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. Well, My name's Niall Crowley. I'm one of the founders of Invoke Democracy Now!, a democracy organisation that was set up after the, uh, the referendum result in June 23rd. Uh, just very briefly, I'm going to introduce the speakers, and I'll have five minutes to speak, and then we'll get, an, uh, get the discussion going. Uh, First first off is um, Miranda Green, who's a journalist and former Liberal Democrat advisor, uh, specialising in politics and education, Um, and then we've got Emily Barley on my right, right. Um, who's the chairman of Conservatives for Liberty, and then on my left we've got John L. White, who's a student and political activist, former member, member of the Dudley Youth Council and founder and chair of Political Sweep. Um, then we have James uh, Paul who's on my right as well. And uh, finally, Dr Michael Fitzpatrick, who is on my left just here, um, who's a writer on medicine and politics and the author of uh, The Tyranny of Health. So, Miranda, would you like to start us off?
1: So, uh, we're supposed to be d- discussing whether the political party is over... And um, I would say that it's not yet a corpse, but it's in a lot of trouble, quite sick. Um, And I wanted to sort of focus on, very briefly on what's gone wrong, um, but there may be some ideas for how we could sort of reinvent democracy in an era where the political parties feel very, very retro indeed, and as if they're behind the curve of what the appetite uh, amongst the public craves. Um, We sort of offer two things, neither of which I think are ideal. One is a kind of bloodless technocracy, which sort of sells itself as very sensible and competent and managerial, but doesn't really speak to people's real thirsts. And on the other side, um, as we know, a kind of massively successful at the moment wave of populism, some of which is quite nationalistic in its tone, um, I would argue, uh, being of an essentially small-l liberal point of view, that neither of these things are, are the answer, and we need to sort of move be- be beyond them and try and invent something new, partly also because of what's just happening, which is that over a long period of time, several decades, the traditional voting patterns in this country are sort of breaking down. So the days of the 1950s and 60s, where you know 90% of the electorate would either be voting red or blue, that, that's over now. And um, if there is a kind of fracturing underway, particularly amongst younger voting groups, which is clearly evidenced by the pollsters, we need to think about what to put in its its place in a constructive way. And so here are just three short ideas of of constructive ways that we could think about what comes next. One is uh, participation. So uh, clearly, you know, there are these sort of interesting new movements like momentum and like the the extraordinary mass membership of the Scottish National Party since the referendum in 2014. Uh, So there are sort of cases of, you know, rushing to participate in something. So there's clearly sort of appetite there, but it's not the same as participation in the decision-making process of the country. Um, So I think it's quite, I, I feel quite cheered in a way by momentum and by the kind of rush of young people particularly joining. Um, even when I don't remotely agree with the politics that's being sort of espoused and retailed by those particular groups, because I think involvement is a good thing, but it isn't the same as participating in the decision-making. So we have to invent new ways, Um, and I think we should be a bit more experimental. I think we should go beyond elections, and we should look at the sort of experiments that have been done in the Netherlands and in Ireland, where you actually have citizens' juries, you try to consult the public at every stage of policy making, not just in a yes-no yes, yes no vote and not just in, in choosing representatives. And The second thing that I think is really, really important, it's very important to me personally um, and my sort of political outlook, but the idea of pluralism and pluralism as an ideal. Um, first past the post is kind of probably eventually breaking down, I think, as the, as, the vote, as voting patterns fracture and as you have more choice. But those choices are not really possible once you come to form a government under first-past-the-post, it doesn't really work. You know, we can experiment with coalitions if that's what elections throw up, but they don't really work unless you actually have a voting system where you then form a government that actually represents shades of opinion on a spectrum which are all represented, so I think we need to look at that. I think it's incredibly important, particularly where we are at the moment in this sort of quite bad tempered debate that we're having in this country and in America as well, to understand that in democracy you have to make room for dissent and people don't agree and you have to find ways of continuing a debate without excluding those who disagree with you. And having covered the Scottish referendum, there were lots of incredibly positive things about that sort of the excitement in the streets, the way that everyone, any bus you got got on, any news agent you walked into, everyone was debating the referendum all the time, 24 hours a day. It was wonderful. But obviously since the referendum, it's a little bit difficult to to ignore the fact that you're sort of not allowed to disagree anymore with the separatists in Scotland. And I think that we need to have a, a sort of cultural acceptance in our politics about respect for dissent, and for constant debate and for other points of view. And that sometimes means compromise, which is completely sort of negative, and the word is totally negative associations now in a way that I really don't think it should be. Um, And the third thing I just wanted to say is that we tend to sort of discuss democracy and political parties just as if it was only about elections and only about polling day and the results from polling day. And I think we sort of need to slightly go back to first principles about democracy as the idea of representation and, uh, you know, ways of making decisions on behalf of everyone, because uh, our electoral system's not really serving us. I would argue argue very strongly that referendums do not serve us. Um, And I think we need to sort of go back to thinking about what democracy means, and it means, um, you know, more than than elections, it means the rule of law, it means equality before the the law, um, and it it means sort of civil society, society. So I think we also need to rediscover ways of harnessing all of those things to give us a feeling of participation and everyone being included and in owning the decisions that we take as a nation. And at the moment, our political parties are not remotely delivering that.
0: Great. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Hopefully we can pick up on some of those themes uh, when we get going. Emily? Okay.
2: Um, so this is such an enormous topic to grapple with. So... Um, so I'm going to focus on political party membership to begin with because I think it's actually quite an interesting um, issue in how it, it's sort of taken as one trend and then seems to have taken uh, a different trend more recently. So From kind of 2010 to 2013 there was a lot of discussions about how um, political party membership was dying and people weren't interested in politics anymore and it would all be about single-issue campaign groups, Um, and I really bought into this idea that parties were hollowed out and were in terminal decline, but in the last kind of two years or so, it's changed and it's forced me to review my opinion as well of of what political party membership is, is doing. Um, Again, like Miranda, I'd point to the the Scottish independence referendum as a bit of a turning point. I think it was the first time in a long time that a whole society was discussing politics and a political issue. Um, In Scotland, granted, um, but but nevertheless, I think it showed that people on all levels and and parts of society were actually interested in politics and in how their, their country was governed. Um, and we've seen that follow through into SNP uh, party membership. On the conservative side, we saw um, following last year's election and the majority that was returned, a massive flow of interest, uh, members joining up, people joining campaign groups like mine, um, and just generally being a bit more inclined to become a member of a political party The same election last year obviously was quite important for Labour as well because it ended up with Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party and and nothing short of a boom really in in Labour Party membership for for good or bad for the Parliamentary Party. Against this backdrop, um, I looked at what... Attitudes are doing and every year uh, there's a British Attitude Survey and I was actually quite interested to see that since 2013 there's been a massive turnaround in attitudes towards politics More people are interested in politics now than at any time since 1986 which is Quite interesting. I think given we had the whole new labor project through that time and at the same time more people now are identifying with a particular party than any time since 1987, which, again, is huge. And I think all of these changes were really crystallised in the referendum that we've all just been through, this massive exercise in democracy. I can't speak for other parties, but I know from the Conservative side, from talking to people who are part of of associations up and down the country, we've experienced, since June, an enormous surge in in membership. My own association, it's around 20% growth in just two months more people are showing that they really want to play their part in the decision making in the country. So for me, this backdrop of of kind of 20 years or or even 30 years of decline of political parties and then this much more recent turnaround suggests two things. First of all, that people really are interested in politics and probably throughout that, that 20, 30 years of decline, they still were quite interested in politics and parties. But the second issue there for me, is the product that, um, that parties present. you know, they kind of have all looked the same for a while. They haven't been particularly engaging or welcoming of their members. And, and I think that actually probably has quite a large part to play in why membership dropped off.
0: Thank.: you
3: Actually, I wanted to start off by agreeing with what Emily said, but taking it from a kind of different angle. For me, initially, when I heard this question, my answer was like, no, I don't think political parties are over. So for me, I've only lived through Tony Blair, coalition, David Cameron, whatever was in between that and my kind of interpretation of British politics was that nobody really cares, it takes a lot for people to be outraged, British outrage goes as far as like getting a passive aggressive hashtag trending on Twitter and outside of that it's kind of you know, well, you know, there's more important things on TV, so I was like I don't think political parties will be over I think that in Britain we have kind of this culture of um, like flogging a dead horse, even if there's no horse literally left to flog, however when I looked um, into this, actually, I was quite surprised to find statistically what um, Emily saying is true. So obviously, I wasn't around in the 1980s, but um, apparently the 1980s statistically was some golden age for politics. I don't know what was going on. But um, 3.8% in 1983 of the um, electorate voted for the main parties. That dropped to its all-time low in 2013, where it dropped to 0.8%. It since rose to 1.6% in 2016, Right. We see the same thing with people um, voting for other parties. We see the same thing across um, party growth. It dropped to a historic low between about um, 2003, 2013, then shot up in 2015, 2016 to some random boom that nobody really knows what's going on. And this is being put down to like an anomaly. Nobody really knows why this is going on. I'm not one to really believe statistics. I don't think that um, statistics really portray an experience. So I was like, okay, so what do I think about 2015 and 2016? When you look at it, it's been a mad year. Mad, okay? So we've had the 2015 election, nobody saw that coming. We've had Jeremy Corbyn twice been elected with one of the largest majority, nobody saw that coming. We had Brexit, nobody saw that coming. We've had Trump, nobody saw that coming. The rise of UKIP, nobody saw it coming. The rise of SNP, nobody saw it coming. So what I'm getting from this is that nobody's really seeing anything coming, right? (laughs) For a long time, we've been, it failed the um, mood of the electorate. Parliament and um, critics and all alike keep on putting on this, you know, everyone really enjoys this kind of milky, centrist politics that we've kind of had growing. Everyone is down for this power over principle. You know, it doesn't matter what your principles are, as long as you're in power, you can somehow change your morals about five years in, and you can get things that you want done. That's apparently what everyone wants, but that's not what people are actually saying. So while I was thinking that, no, you know, Britain just carries on, it doesn't really care, that's not true at all. Brexit, whether you agree or disagree with what happened, That, for me, was one of the first political events that I saw that wasn't fought by the political class. It wasn't fought by economics. It wasn't fought by long economic terms. It was fought by genuine concerns of genuine people. People are trying and starting to find a passion in politics. They're starting to find what they care about, what it means to them. I don't think that necessarily means the end of party politics. I think it means the end of political class. I think it means the end of the disenfranchised... the disenfranchisement of um, people that Parliament has put on to kind of sweep people out of the way, you know, we understand that you have opinions, but you don't know, like, what GDP means. You don't know exactly what the Home Office does. So I don't think you're qualified to talk on this. I think those days are slowly moving to an end. I think people are finding a passion. They're finding what they, ca- what they care about, and that is messy. That's why we're seeing a polarisation. That's why we're seeing Trump. That's why we're seeing Nigel Farage. That's why we're seeing Jeremy Corbyn, because people are swinging out to the ends of their spectrum and finding what it is they care about. That doesn't mean that Conservative and Labour have to go. But it does mean that if they want to continue, they need to re-evaluate their own parties and find out what made them start in the beginning. They didn't start out as, you know, we're all going to crawl towards the centre and we're all going to say kind of the same thing, but then, like, I'll change this bit, you can take that bit, and, like, you know, maybe between us we can get hung parliament and, like, we can, you know, talk about it backdoor and get, like, a government in. Those days are over. That doesn't mean that we have to abolish our whole system. That means we just need to relook and we need to put back together parliament and people. We need to put back together politics and people. And you need to go back to the beginning and build it up from there. You don't need to wreck it all to the ground.
0: Quite a lot there to think about. Um, James, thank you very much for joining joining us. Are you you ready? Yes, I am. I'm sorry I'm
4: not Douglas Carswell. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm probably not going to be as good as Camille Pallier, who apparently was just awesome. I, can, I couldn't get in to see her. Um, as you know, I haven't had much time to prepare this. I've had, like, zilch time, which, which actually suits me fantastically, because I bloody well hate preparing for these things. You, you normally spend far, far too long. One of the thing, Whenever I'm going to do a, a public speaking engagement, one of the things that always concerns me is, what are my audience going to be like? Because I've died horribly on various occasions, and normally it's been about pitching my, my speech at slightly the wrong, the wrong level, the wrong kind of uh, political level particularly. Um, I would imagine, guessing, that most of you would not like to define yourselves by anything in particular because you're all kind of crazy maverick individuals, right? But, but if you had to put a label on yourself, you might consider yourself something like libertarianish left, maybe.
5: <laughs>
4: no? Yeah? Ish? Some of you. Some of you agree with that. Some of you obviously disagree violently. Um, <laughs> I, too, have, have problems when people ask me what my politics are. People, uh, people who, who don't know me very well assume I'm just a, a Tory uh, because it's an insult and it means I'm a, bad, I'm a bad thing and they don't have to engage with my, my views uh, because they've labelled me already. Um, I have tr- sometimes in the past I've called myself a libertarian. The problem with libertarian, I find, is I think it should be an, an adjective rather than a noun because w- what you always find libertarians doing when two or three are gathered together, is playing the more libertarian than thou game. (laughs) What, you mean you don't want heroin dealers to sell sell, um, heroin to school children? Well, you're not very libertarian. You don't want to invite the entire world to come and live in Britain. Uh, This is the Adam Smith Institute line at the moment. Um, uh, Then you're not a libertarian. Um, uh, So I tend to sort of fudge it. I say, yeah, I'm a classical liberal because I believe in in small government, or I'm a conservatarian. I'm a kind of South Park conservative. Um, But here we are at an event which is being staged by one of my total heroines. I love Claire Fox. But Claire Fox comes from living Marxism. So so does uh, Mick Hume, Tiffany Jenkins, Brendan O'Neill... And there's barely a cigarette paper's difference between their political views and, and my political views. We, we differ on a few issues, probably the monarchy and stuff like that, maybe private education, I don't know. Although I've, I've heard Claire arguing on the moral maze before now that she wished every school could be like Eton, and I, I rather agree with, agree with that. Um, so I think we can agree on one thing. We are all slightly uncomfortable with, with labels, and probably we can also agree that right now, there isn't a party out there that really represents our views. I'm currently a member of two parties for complicated reasons: of UKIP, uh, which I joined in the days when it was talking about exciting stuff like flat taxes, um, and I joined the Conservatives in order to get a cheap pass to the Conservative conference. I don't like. To, I don't. I don't think it's helpful for a journalist being. Affiliated to a particular party. I I think it has a deleterious effect on their on their journalism. I think journalists should be independent. Um, I agreed very strongly with something Janelle said um, about the about the EU referendum. I think that was the only political event in my life where I felt genuinely involved in the political. Process where, where something truly extraordinary happened. For the first time in my life, I felt that my vote really, really mattered. And often it doesn't. I mean, I, I lived in London for a long time and I voted for my MP who happened to be um, Labour. I voted in two elections. I voted Labour. I certainly wasn't voting for the bloody Labour Party. Um, I was voting for Kate Hoey because I liked her and she supports fox hunting. Which is good in my, in, in, in my book. I thought it was very brave of her to do that in the, in the Labour Party. Um, but I wasn't happy when Labour, you know, when they were in government at all. And I, I have to say, I wasn't very happy when David Cameron was in government either. I thought that was appalling. And I'm not even sure I'm, I'm convinced by the, by the current lot. But I think most of us can probably agree that, that the uh, Brexit was a fantastic moment. I, I remember going, going to have my hair cut. Um, by Charlotte, the girl who does my hair. And uh, we were talking about Brexit, and I was, she, she was asking me rather nervously which way I was going to vote, and I said, I am totally going to vote uh, leave. I don't like the tyrannical European superstate. state. I, I, I believe in freedom. I think we should be, be free to forge our own destiny. And she couldn't believe it. She, she, she thought I was a toff, which I'm not, but she said, you know, I thought people like you um, were, were all voting remain. And I've got a minute. minute. Okay, good. Um, Voting Remain. And do you know what? She was actually rather right. Um, In that a lot of my my smarter friends, particularly the ones who'd been to school, a.k.a. Eton, um, they they did seem unusually, unhealthily drawn to voting Remain. And I would quiz them on this, and I would try and get a, a sort of... Uh, a solid argument as to why it was a good a good thing to remain in this corrupt, sclerotic superstate, uh, and they all they could come up with was sort of airy ideas like, well, um, I think it would be really sad if, if um, Henrietta and Johnnie can't go and live whatever country they want to do. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you really are feeling the pain. I would like to think that what most of us here believe in is, is, is liberty, uh, the right to determine our own, our own destiny. And I think most of us here are actually on the right side of the argument, and our enemy is the political class. I mean the political class, I mean, I mean the, this cosy stitch-up between the bankers, the lawyers... The big corporations and the political class. And I think that is where the fight, the true fight, lies now. I think we are revolutionaries. Thank you.
0: Thank you. you.
5: you.
0: you. you. Finally, Mike.
5: Uh, Thanks, Niall. Yeah, I'll try and help James out with some of his problems of labels. I think we all struggle with problems of political labels. And in a sense, we're all emerging from the detritus of failed political models and failed political parties. So I'd just like to survey briefly my experience of failed political models um, by way of introducing the discussion. Um, One model that has certainly failed is that of the Bolshevik Party. Now, I start by saying that because when I was a student in the early 70s, I believed that we needed just such a party to tackle the problems that were thrown up by the advent of the recession in the capitalist system that ended uh, three decades of post-war expansion and stability. And what... And I wasn't alone in this view at the time. What many of us believed, that what was required was not merely a change of government, but a fundamental transformation in the social system that was to be led by a revolutionary party based in the working class, which would overthrow the capitalist state, install the dictatorship of the proletariat, and supervise the transition uh, from capitalism to communism. (laughs) I spent I spent much of the next twenty years engaged in t- trying to f- realise exactly such a project, and I'm not don't think I'm breaking any confidences by saying this project was not successful. <laughs> As things turned out, the radical upsurge that I, that was part of the experience of my generation at the end of the 60s and the early 70s, wasn't the harbinger of a new revolutionary era. It was more the last gasp of the era that opened with the first emergence of the working class onto the stage of world politics in 1848. And that mo- movement ended in the, by the, between 1848 and roughly the end of the 1980s with a series of defeats for the labor movement at home and abroad, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, the end of the whole polarization of labor and capital left and right, all came to an end. And it marked the end of the working class as an agent of political change. Now, that was a defeat. It wasn't just a defeat for me. It wasn't just a defeat for a whole movement. It was a significant setback for the whole uh, project of realizing fundamental political change. Now, after the, that's one exhausted model. In the 1990s, many people believed that the end of communism, the end of that era, would be... Succeeded. this was the moment for the Social Democratic Party. But particularly striking, this was a view that this would happen in Eastern Europe. That over the last century, these parties existed everywhere. They'd offered various forms of uh, state socialism as a way of med- uh, an alternative to either overthrowing capitalism or, or just living with capitalism. And it seemed to be, there was a sort of notion that that would uh, now, the moment had arrived that that sort of movement would attract political support. As we know, it uh, spectacularly didn't. That people's Experience of state socialism, of nationalized industries, of welfare capitalism in, in the various countries that it was uh, attempted, was a very negative one. People were very disillusioned and alienated uh, from that. And so members drifted away from the old uh, social democratic parties. The votes declined, as we know, and right-wing uh, governments of various sorts succeeded. But what was interesting here was that the removal of the poll of left, uh, left-wing politics as a... As a Focus of influence on the social democratic movement uh, had a, a, a very significant effect in, in uh, encouraging the drift of these social democratic parties to the centre as they tried to uh, contain, uh, cling on to their working class base and appeal to a, a wider middle class uh, sort of support. As we know, that culminated in Britain in New Labour, which uh, came ended in the uh, spectacular failure. The Corbyn ascendancy confirms the. Death agony of laborism, really, as it's uh, the the mainstream has failed to come to terms with the modern era, and it's uh, there's a sort of uh, movement in if we could talk about it in more detail, the character of it that doesn't uh, that seeks in a way to to revive the corpse of laborism by uh, uh, installing a sort of antiquated state socialism in accommodation with a fashionable environmentalism and environmental poli- and, uh, identity politics. That's not going to fly. But um, So that, that's the second model that I think significantly exhausted. The final model we, we can look at is that of the Conservative Party. It's quite interesting. When the, this discussion was first uh, mooted in the summer, it seemed like all the parties were in the process of disintegration. But as we know, the one which spectacularly got its show back on the road was the Conservative Party, confirming its status as the most successful political party in modern European history. Theresa May then used the Conservative Party conference to reposition the Tory party as a party of the working class, very astutely, in my view. But what you see here is a sort of domino effect. The collapse of the revolutionary parties, the collapse of the reformist parties, also removed was a very significant source of influence on the Conservative Party. Douglas Carswell, I'm, I'm very sorry he isn't here as well, actually, because I've gone to the trouble of reading his book, which is a penance. Uh, but, I jow-
0: <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> but it's not without some rewarding uh, uh, aspect. One of the points that Douglas Carswell well understands is he makes the point the modern Conservative Party was formed in response to the challenge of the rising labour movement in the 1920s. I think that's quite an astute observation because obviously the Conservative Party existed before that, but in its modern form, it emerged in response to the challenge of labor and it has survived and thrived through the 20th century precisely in the uh, working out of that challenge. Can it survive the disappearance of such a challenge? I think that's very much in the whole Brexit phenomenon that some of the aspects have been discussed really brings that uh, 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 into question. So finally, Brexit. (laughs) Chairman Mao, him say... Everything under heaven is utter chaos. The situation is excellent. <laughs> 17.5 million people voted against their betters. And in the inevitable words of Corporal Jones, they don't like it up em. <laughs> And this was a dramatic, and you know, there was an interesting discussion about this already today, completely unexpected, as Jonal says, courageous statement of the British uh, 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 demos against the, uh, defying the uh, advice of all their betters and that endless list of uh, acronyms and uh, authorities who told them that uh, they should vote for Remain. This is a momentous and exhilarating moment in British politics, 17.5 million people, the biggest number of people has, has been widely commented upon that have ever voted for anything. and. What's most striking is the miserable nature of the response to this uh, dramatic moment. That it it inculcates widely dreams of a return to the status quo ante. And you see all these uh, former politicians offering their services. David Miliband, Tony Blair's even. You almost expect next week, David Cameron, will be uh, coming back uh, to say uh, if his services, see if his services are required. Everybody yearns desperately for the old ding dong left and right and centre to be resumed. It's not going to happen. The old order is not going to uh, uh, take take place. Some people recognise the challenge and the opportunity this moment. Where it goes, I have to make a serious confession to you. I do not know. But I know that what we do need now is not to try and revive the corpses of the old parties. We need something new. We need some new ideas, we need some new uh, organizations, and we need some new arguments. We need a new politics to m- rise to the occasion of the, what the Brexit voters put on the agenda. Let me thank our speakers, everybody)